Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, November 27th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Aaron. This week we're talking about one of the most renowned sport fish in the world. It's the Silver King, the Atlantic Tarpon. We are very pleased with ourselves that we've snagged best-selling author and fly fisherman Monty Burke to join us as a guest. So very warm welcome to you, Monty. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay. So we're going to clearly dig into fishing on this episode, but first we're going to nerd out about the fish itself. And to okay. start things off, let's get a visual going in our minds about where we're going and what this fish looks like. So Monty, if you could zoom us in, like we're on Google Earth, plop yep. us right on top of a tarpon where we're going to be able to see it up close, maybe touch it. What are some of the first things we're going to notice about the fish's appearance as well as the surroundings? Um, So they range from, they're they're mainly in the Atlantic, a couple have scooted through the Panama Canal. But if we're going to do a Google Earth and try to get down on one, we're going to go to the Gulf of Mexico. So every year these fish come in from the deep and they swim in the shallows and that's where we kind of interact with them. One of the true allures of this fish is how cool it looks. Mm-hmm. Um, they have these huge, depending on how big they are, they could be silver dollar or even bigger size scales, Dang. which look different in different areas of Florida. In the Keys, where the water is crystal clear, these scales look like a polished armor of a knight, basically. In the Everglades, where it's a little more jungly and you've got mangroves, stuff like that, these scales can have these really awesome purple, pink, and even greenish hues to them. Oh my gosh. A little further north, you get ones with more black backs, which probably were reared in the Mississippi Delta. So the scales would be one thing that sort of stands out. What I've always loved about them too is they have sort of a pronounced underbite. <laughs> they look like the sort of cartoonish way that we, we look for pugilists. They have enormous mouths. Uh, they can mm-hmm. open their mouths to the entire diameter of their body. So I think they're one of the coolest looking fish. They're cool looking in the water when they jump out of the water. And they not only jump out of the water when you've hooked one when you're angling, but they sometimes just free jump. So they just jump everywhere. Maybe they have a critter on or something like that. They just want to jump. They just free jump. They can breathe air. So they occasionally roll as well. And, and just seeing a rolling tarpon is one of those thrilling things you've ever seen because you don't, it's like, there's a lot of potential there. It's like the tip of the iceberg. You're like, how big okay. is that? You know? Yeah. How big are these fish? Little ones are five, six pounds or whatever. I think the largest one I ever caught was 356 pounds. And so I would say in the Keys, your average fish is probably between 50 and 80 pounds, I would say. Uh, in different areas of Florida, they get up to 150. The world record on a fly is 201. Now, if you're out there long enough, you'll see one that kind of blows your mind. So I always like to ask this question when we're talking about a big fish with a big mouth. What size object can they fit in their mouth? Uh, a trash can lid, the biggest ones. Oh. So we didn't, oh I didn't gosh. even mention the fact that they can, <laughs> they can grow to eight feet in length as well. So, I mean, we're talking like just these massive, massive beasts. I mean, they're, and they're prehistoric looking. They're just so rad. I love them. So if you talked a little bit about where you can find these fish on a map. I'm curious about their life history. Are they utilizing different habitats as they mature and change throughout their life? Or what is their life history like? Definitely. So one thing it's, that I find really intriguing about this fish is that they're mysterious. Uh, and they're mysterious primarily because we in the United States uh, do not consider them a food fish. Because we're sort of such a consumer-faced society, we haven't studied tarpon very much. The spawning of tarpon has actually never been witnessed by a human. 
The theory is that they go hundreds of miles offshore and that we know that they dive down really deep. Then we know when they hatch, they sort of float with the currents into very shallow water near mangroves, oftentimes brackish water. And there they, they're reared and they grow and they're little tiny, you know, they're, they're as big as four or five inches long. And there they can avoid predators by being in very shallow water, predators like snook and stuff that would, that would eat them. Then they gradually, as they get older, they start moving into the sort of deeper water. So they do spend an enormous amount of time in deep water, Gulf Stream uh, and other places. But every spring, uh, they start their migration. It's kind of a, it's a spawning run, basically, but they migrate in all sorts of different directions, but probably the biggest one, you know, sort of starts as a southern migration. It starts and goes around Florida up through the Gulf to Mississippi to Texas. And then they kind of make a big circle around the Gulf of Mexico. The coolest time for me is when we can see them and we come into contact with them. I mean, we we sort of intersect with their migration, which is this sort of almost atavistic human thing. You know, I think humans have been kind of intersecting with different animal migrations since prehistory. Yeah. It's cool when you mentioned that mystery piece that a lot of fish still kind of have that mystery around them. It's bringing to mind, um, we did an episode on American eel yep. and they have a big mystery when they go out into the ocean, they spawn. We don't know much about what happens there. I do want to just jump in because I, I talk about the elopomorpha, which is this, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a group of fish that's, I don't know, it's really cool because you got these things, you got the, the tarpons, the bonefish, you got these weird kind of deep mm-hmm. sea, not true eels, any of the eels. And it's this group of fish that you wouldn't normally group together. But when you look, at they're the only ones that have those leptocephalus larvae. They look like willow leaves that float around mm. in the water. And it is this cool, they're floating back. We don't see them spawn. They come back. They have this weird developmental stage. When they're spread out like that, they're not feeding. They're just like absorbing nutrients from the sea. And then they shrink down into their juvenile form. It's not often that you see animals that they shrink. They're and then you and get smaller, this- yeah. Yeah. yeah, it goes from big to a little bit smaller. And then you get that massive growth to this eight foot fish that you're talking about. So yep. it is just, yeah, it, it's fascinating. I love it. To me, this the mystery thing is, I know that scientists want to know more about this fish with the idea that we can monitor them better and help them out sort of ecologically and scientifically. But I kind of like the mystery. I mean, we're kind of in a world where we know everything about everything. You know, it's all, everything's on Wikipedia and all this kind of stuff. It's kind of fun to have a couple things out there that are that are a little bit unknown. It, to me, it, it adds to the whole experience of fishing for tarpon and loving them. Well, let's get into the fishing. <laughs> I want to hear your best fishing story. Your like maybe the first or most memorable introduction to this fish you've had, or your best fishing trip you've had for these fish. So, interesting enough, my most memorable one is my first hooking a large tarpon, so a hundred plus is a life-changing experience. Now, I'm not talking about something like you don't you don't find religion, you don't, it's not like stopping drinking, stuff like that, but it does adjust the way that you look at things in life and thus is life-changing. It is like being, is like all of a sudden you were just kind of hanging out with your fly rod and you cast it and it, a speeding 18-wheeler went by and hooked your fly and just started, you know, pulling out your line. So the very first trip I ever did was with this very famous, probably the most famous guide in Florida, a guy named Steve Huff. And we went out in the Everglades and we were fishing for those laid up fish, which are extremely exciting, also difficult to fish for because you've got to cast it. You've got to cast your little fly, you know, exactly eight inches from its nose. Any closer you'll spook the fish and any further than that, then the fish won't see it. So it's, it's super fun because of that. And all morning I'd been blowing cast after cast after cast, but great guides are also like great sort of 
coaches and psychologists. So, you know, I should have been sort of fit for the funny farm, but he was like, don't worry, you're going to get it. You're doing great. Blah, blah, blah. And I, I believed him somehow. Mm-hmm. And uh, just as I had missed a fish, he just said to the right. And I looked to the right and a fish had just come up for air and was just hanging out at the top like that. And I just sort of reaction threw it out towards the fish, landed it that those eight inches, mm-hmm. took one strip. And the next thing I know, this tarpon was jumping behind us. That's how fast it took out the line. And I actually pointed, I was like, Steve, there's another one jump behind us. He said, that's yours. Oh, and, but this one took me two hours to get in. This thing just took out every bit of line I could. Now, I never forget finally getting this thing in after, you know, I, I was dehydrated. You know, I'd been like grimacing the whole time, like in concentration. My back was killing me. My knees were all scraped because I was leaning up against a part of the boat. I felt like I was going to vomit because I was so dehydrated. And my hand was like stuck in a curl. I'll never forget, as soon as we released it, the fish swam away. And I looked at Steve and I said, I can't wait to do that again. (laughs) Oh, man. In hunting and fishing, the advantage is often with a human because of our powerful guns or whatever like that. But for tarpon fishing, it's sort of an equal battle, if not tilted kind of in the tarpon's favor, because it's the only thing that I know of that you can hunt or fish that truly fights back. Every time I hook one, I pull as hard as I can. I'm pulling with all of my body weight, not just my, you know, not just my arms. I'm pulling like this and this thing's running out and you get a bunch of line back in. You say, oh, I think I got it now. And zoom, they go, they go way back out again. It's like a tug of war. Yeah. It's a total tug of war and they're actually fighting back. So when you catch a salmon or when you catch a trout or a bonefish, all great fish and all, you know, fight fairly well, but really all you have to do is kind of hold your rod up, let them do their runs and kind of tire themselves out. And then you just reel the thing in. That's not the case with the tarpons. One mistake I made in that uh, early, my earliest, my first fight, which I have since subsequently learned from, is if you give them a reprieve, you stop and relax a little bit and aren't pulling on them completely like that, they get a second wind. And unlike a lot of other people's second winds or a lot of other species second winds, they can even kind of gain strength when they do that. Mm -hmm. And you're, you know, more tired. So I've always, I love the fact that it's sort of, uh, you know, it's a real sport in that way it's like a it's it's more of a game i mean there, there's a writer named tom mcguane who's got a, a great line about how games need sort of obstacles within them you know he's like that's the reason there's a net in tennis and to me that's this is the mm-hmm. pursuing these things with a you know five ounce graphite rod and a little hook with chicken feathers on it and and giving a lot of the advantage to your quarry uh makes it even more sporting um and makes it to my mind even more fun do you have any insights about how the fish fare after they've been fought for half hour, two hours, 12 hours? Is there any catch and release mortality? And if so, are there best practices for folks in terms of handling the fish safely for the fish and for themselves? Yep. That's a great question. Um, so I don't think there's any hard and fast statistics, but but the longer you fight a fish, the harder it is for that fish to survive, I think. Um, you know, I think if you fi- if you fight a fish very cleanly, 20 minutes, half an hour, stuff like that, get the hook out of its mouth really quickly. And the no sharks around in the immediate area, I think you're going to be totally fine. And then of course, if you take two hours, or you would take 12 hours, the chances that fish is kind of making it or getting away from sharks, if there's any sharks in the area, are pretty slim. There's a kind of holier than thou attitude that sometimes us catch and release anglers have. Like, oh, but I don't keep my fish, I release them all, as if mm-hmm. that makes us somehow better. When in reality, you're still having an effect on the fish totally having an effect on a fish. In fact, I remember catching one fish with Steve. I think it was last year or two years ago. And it was a great battle, but it was only like 25 minutes or whatever like that. And I was like, do you think we did okay by that fish? And he said, 
Yeah. He said, but you still ruined his day. If you are a moral and ethical angler, you have to think about the fact that what you're doing does impact another living thing. And that anytime you catch any fish, you're impacting something. So I think that's something we think about. And I think about it a lot now, especially as I've gotten older, I've thought about it even more. But the way that I rationalize that for now anyway, and this is subject to change, is that anglers, and myself included, uh, happen to be the people most invested in the conservation of the things that they angle for. And so that alone, I think, it doesn't justify messing with these fish, but it helps kind of maybe get through it. Okay. You know, a, a good example is I'm a member of BTT and work a lot with BTT. BTT is the Bonefish Tarpon Trust is made up primarily of anglers. And without BTT, there would, there would be no research on bone, bonefish or tarpon. Uh, another good example is the Atlantic Salmon Federation, which is a dedicated group of anglers. You know, they're the ones that have orchestrated the commercial buyouts in Greenland to save the wild Atlantic salmon. And again, made up of anglers. We There's a quote that supposedly Aldo Leopold said, which is, we protect what we love. Yep. And I think that has a lot to, to do with my sort of justification for how I can go out and impact, you know, kind of an ecosystem or an animal when I when I do these things. But just getting back to tarpon really quickly, I th I think now, and again, this is just my personal opinion. If my fight goes over half an hour, I just you know you can point the rod at the fish and just yank your rod backwards, to snap it off. Um, just yeah, because, yeah. yeah, I'm just done. I'm kind of done physically, but also they're they're done physically. I think that's sort of the moral ethical thing to do. I know some people who fish. They take the points off their hook so they can just kind of grab the fish and have it jump once or twice, and then it falls off. I know other people, and I don't blame them, who want to land the thing and see it and yeah. pet it on the head and stuff like that. So I, you know, I, I get all of that. But now that we know that our resources are finite, uh, that we do need to pay more attention to sort of how we individually, ethically, and morally uh, interact with with other species. Yeah, it's good to be thinking about those things. And I mean, just to add to your point about kind of giving back any of the equipment you're buying, I mean, that money is yep. going to be going back or part of it at least back into yep. access or conservation to the states. Okay, it's that time again. This is Minute with Maria. And Maria is joining us again from Chogian Lands in Western Alaska. She's helping us elevate Indigenous voices and perspectives on the show. Ongong, everyone. Thanks for having me. Okay, I'm wondering what you're thinking as Monty is talking about the thought process that goes into being an ethical catch and release angler, and if there are any similarities between what he's saying and what you think about when you're catching salmon for subsistence. Uh, generally, when we're catching salmon for subsistence, we're kind of targeting salmon alone, and usually we keep all that we can. So there's kind of a big difference there with that. But with him, I really like and appreciate that he gives credence to how he has a time limit for every tarpon that he catches. So if he doesn't want to fight it for a long time, he lets it go. When Monty talks about when he catches a tarpon, he acknowledges that he's ruining the fish's day. And so I can appreciate and respect that as well. Coming from where you are physically and or culturally, what are some schools of thought that you'd bring with you to Florida if you were to go there and target one of these tarpon? Well, selfishly, I really would like to go just to catch the thrill of catching a tarpon. <laughs> um, but culturally, um, I guess I would go with, with the thought in mind that if I were to catch the, one of these tarpon and bring it up to the surface, that I'd have to do it in a respectful and fast manner and fight it really quick as well. Like Monty was saying, um, that there's a learning curve and, and I don't want to 
fight a tarpon for 12 hours. I want to do it in a respectful manner, fight it fast and get it up and let it go and be on Hmm. with its day. Is there anything standing out in terms of how people are affecting the habitat of these tarpon or how folks might think about their interaction with the land and how it impacts these fish? Yes, absolutely. I was really surprised by all of the golf course developments down there and there's not as many pollutants going into the water and changing the ecology of the Everglades. So I hope that they can listen to the land. Can you tell folks listening just a little bit about our tarpon of the north here in Alaska and how they're important to folks up here? Tarpon of the north are the she-fish. They have a similar shape to tarpon as far as them being long and thin, and they like to jump out of the water, and they're fun fighting fish as well. They are super culturally important because they're one of our biggest diets um, up here indigenously, and we use them as a base fish for all diets and cooking and also to mix up a gudak with. We'll see you next week, Maria. Great chatting. All right. See you then. Talk soon. Kagasakang. So this book, Lords of the Fly, great title, by the way. Thank you. What made you want to pursue writing this book? And then what was the most interesting or surprising thing you came about in doing your research for it? First of all, I just want to mention something about the title. I love the title too. And I also love the fact that there are probably, I hope anyway, hundreds of befuddled sixth grade English teachers who ask their children to order Lord of the Flies and they show up with with this tarpon book. (laughs) Yeah. That was done uh, not intentionally, but I, but I don't mind. Yeah, that's funny. So the book came from actually fishing with this guy, Steve Huff. I would fish with him and, and actually stay with uh, he and his wife, and they would cook dinner. And then, of course, you, you, know, you spend all day in the boat with someone and then you know, over a beer and then having dinner. And he would, kept on telling me stories about this place called Homosassa, which is this, I just love the, the, the name. It was, had this kind of poetic and enchanting kind of sound to it anyway. But it's a little town about 70 miles north of Tampa. And back in the 70s, it was sort of the epicenter of, of the fly fishing world. And one could even make the argument that it was the epicenter and apex of, of the fishing world in general. It, for whatever reason, scientists aren't exactly sure, within this little bay there swam the world's largest tarpon. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, there's some probably a little bit bigger in Africa, but the largest tarpon that you could actually see and catch with a fly rod. The best fly anglers at the time and the best fly fishing guides all were there at the same for about a five or six year period, all there at the same time, pursuing the same goal, which was this holy grail, which was the world record tarpon. Just beating that record every year. Yeah, I mean they did at least every other year, if not every yeah. year. It was broken and it was just mayhem. It was mayhem on the water, it was mayhem off the water. All these people, I mean, you know, they broke fly rods, they broke lines, they broke marriages, they broke lives. One guy even died, you know. Oh man. It just kind of created this crazy frenzied time. And so he, you know, he, he painted this picture of this sort of apex moment in the sport with all these, you know, if you're within fly fishing, their names that you would recognize, Lefty Cray and Flip Pallet and Billy Pate and all these sort of big names were there or circling around there. So it was intriguing to me. And I met a guy named Tom Evans who became kind of the center of the book. And he made it doubly intriguing to me because he had been there during the heyday, actually with Steve as his guide. And Homosassa fell off a cliff in the 90s, because of, mostly because of environmental reasons. And the tarp had stopped coming in, so the, the white heat was gone, but he dispersed, mm-hmm. except for Tom. He kept going back, and he kept going back, and he's still going back. And so that intrigued me. This like Even as this thing was 
just tanking. He couldn't let go. And he had broken the record a number of times, but he couldn't let go of this thing. That type of obsession, that type of like, I don't know, it's almost poignant to a certain degree, really got me. It's a very interesting thing to write about and to think about. I feel like it's very much a sport of, we don't think about this very much, but it's very much a sport of the interior. Even when you're fishing with someone else, everything going on is is within your head. It's like your internal monologue during the day. You're crafting stories about what has happened, what is happening, what will happen, what kind of stories will you tell yourself or other people at the end of the day? How could you have casted better? It's all going on. All of this stuff's going on mm-hmm. in your head, which I find, to me, that's it's like reading a book or writing. It's like it's, That's a very attractive thing to me. talking about how you had this five, six-year period where everyone was after the tarpon up at Homosassa. What happened? Why did that come to an end? It's impossible to get a definitive reason, but that one thing was the it got so popular that what used to be like maybe five boats and then maybe 25 boats on this bay became like 100 boats. So this, this was actually a, a kind of a, a scene. I mean, the New York Times wrote a big story about it. Sports Illustrated wrote a big story about it. It was a movie made about it at the time. So this is Homosassa is on what's called the Springs Coast of Florida. There are three major freshwater rivers which empty into it, along with literally hundreds of springs. And so it is, you know, very brackish. And it was once, because of that brackishness, perfect habitat for blue crabs. It was just gobsmacked with with blue crabs. And in fact, one of the theories about why the Homosassa tarpon got bigger than tar- other tarpon was because they, for generations, had been coming to Homosassa and there were so many blue crabs that they just feasted all the time and they just got enormously large. Winslow Homer used to go down there to paint because it was so chill. Calvin Coolidge had a house down there. It was a little secret place that was very relaxed without any development. But sometime in the 70s, a couple of developers came in and they built, first of all, these two huge retirement communities and then more retirement communities. And pretty soon, the two counties there had 80 golf courses and every one of those communities and every one of those golf courses tapped into that aquifer. It just sucked all the water out. And so now the flow into Homosassa Bay is at about 40% freshwater flow from the springs and the rivers is at about 40% of its historical flow. And it's also incredibly polluted with nutrients, with runoff. There's a pretty bad sewage problem down there as well. So you had less freshwater and more polluted one. And so pretty soon the crabs went away. These are highly adaptable fish. They've For 50 million years, they've been around. And when their food source is no longer there, they skedaddle. So no one really knows where they went. You go down there now and it's, by some estimates, about 125th of the number of fish come in that historically used to come in. It used to literally be 10,000 fish in this bay. And you can go, I've been down there for, I went down there for the book. I went down for two consecutive Mays and stayed months of May and stayed for long durations. And you go days without seeing a fish, just bobbing in the water, standing up and not seeing anything. And then you'd have a day when you'd see these ginormous fish swimming down these from, from 100 yards away. They look like big, fat, black tadpoles swimming down in this white sand in this clear water. You'd see it and you'd be like, oh, you got a glimpse of maybe what the old days looked like. But it's completely fallen off fallen off in terms of the fishery. And it's, it's a microcosm of problems in Florida, environmental problems. There's a Lots of development that takes away a lot of the prime mangrove ha- habitat. Mangroves are extremely important to not yep. only lots the, of things. The, yeah, the the baby fish is nurseries of the tarpon grow up around those things, but a lot of other fish do too. One of you guys asked me what the most surprising 
thing I learned during the book. And these books are so fun because you do, it's like an, it's an invitation to go find cool stuff that you never would ever find before. Someone gives you money, go down as many rabbit holes as you want, find really cool shit. So I would say the two <laughs> things that I found that were the, that were probably the things that were, that stick out to me the most is one is I was reading about the Sistine Chapel and the depiction of Jonah. And so when the Pope walks out of the Pope's got a little hangout place there in the Vatican. And when he walks out of the door, the first thing he sees is Michelangelo's, he sees the depiction of Jonah. And of course, we all know the story of Jonah as Jonah and the whale. Michelangelo painted a fish biting Jonah. And it wasn't clear what that fish was until they did the, they did a big restoration in the nineties and they cleaned it all up so you could see what it was. And it turns out that fish is a tarpon in Michelangelo. It's crazy. Oh There's a tarpon in, in the Sistine Chapel. And ah. Jonah is a huge story, and it's supposed to be a precursor or, or a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Christ. You know, Jonah's in the whale for three days, like Christ was supposedly dead for three days, but so on and so forth. So it's actually a huge, in the world of Christianity, it's a big it's a big story. And the fact that you chose a tarpon was fascinating. So this was a rabbit hole that I got, I don't know how many weeks I spent like figuring, trying to figure this out, but I called like Michelangelo historians and experts and I called the Vatican and I call, called all these other people. There were a couple of people on the internet I found who had gone down this rabbit hole as well. And the best we could, so there are no tarpon in, in Italy. There's no, he would not have seen tarpon swimming around in Italy. Now, the best we could figure out is that maybe one of the ships that went down to Africa had salted, had caught one and salted one and brought it back and he saw it in a fish market. He did go to fish markets or that occasionally a tarpon will swim out of the Gulf Stream and come shallow for whatever reason and gets lost or whatever. And maybe he saw one of those, but it was just like, it's this thing that I just found fascinating. To go back in time and actually, yeah. yeah, It's it's not a whale, it's a tarpon. And the word tarpon is not mentioned, of course, in the Bible. In the original Hebrew Bible, it's called a dag gadol, which means giant fish. And I think Mm -hmm. when King James had it translated, he just, whoever translated it was like giant fish. Mm -hmm. They could swallow a man. We'll just call it a whale. That's why it became Jonah the whale. But I thought that would find out. I would love to know why there's a tarp in there. But anyway. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I haven't seen the picture. I definitely will look it up as soon as we're off this call. But how, how confident are you that it is a tarp? You mentioned that they look like it's, does it got like the thread fin off of the dorsal and everything? Okay, yeah, 100%, 100% wow. 100% in And what's interesting too is in his, so I looked back at some of his earlier work as well. And in his very first painting, it's this odd kind of apocalyptic thing, but this kind of human-like thing is filled or covered with scales which look just like tarpon scales so i think michelangelo must have seen a tarpon somewhere and he was just an early tarpon fan i'm not really sure but he must have seen one somewhere and it must have caught his eye maybe at a fish mark or something like that and it stuck in his head somewhere so funny one of the the leading kind of michelangelo expert that i contacted for this i even put this exchange in the book because it was so hilarious he just got with every subsequent email i asked him about it you could see his enthusiasm was dwindling he's like oh no So his verdict was, look, by this time, Michelangelo was tired and he was just like, I'm going to put a big fish in there. I don't care what it is. That was his like verdict on it. And I was like, okay, whatever. Thanks. He was a tarpon her. fan. Yeah. He's a big old fan. And then the, the second one was, the <laughs> I found that there was a, a, a mobster who was um, very much a part of the tarpon scene and the world record mm-hmm. scene and actually founded one of the, one of the, or helped found one of the great real companies, fly real companies. So it was this guy that I'd never heard of who was incredibly, was an incredibly big part of this whole scene and yet acted like a mobster the whole time he was out there too. He like would brandish a gun if you came too close to him. You have your tires slashed. 
some guy disappeared one time, some meat market guy didn't disappeared one time. It's like this crazy. And then he went to jail for six years in the middle of his prime tarpon years. And it was just no. like this fascinating. The name was Bobby Aaron. He was this very famous Miami mobster. And so that was fun too. I could put on my kind of like my Goodfellas hat, talk to all of his ex people. And I was talking to Bobby's former business associate and just interviewing him and chatting. And he was telling me all the stuff that Bobby did. He goes, but you know, what? I wouldn't put any of that in your book if I were you. I wouldn't do that. And I was like, yeah. okay. He, did he, goes, he goes, but all of it's true. And so <laughs> oh my gosh. it was for a little while. I, was, I will admit that I was a little bit scared. So Bobby was part of the Genovese family, which has pretty strong ties here in Brooklyn. I kept wondering if I was ever going to get the knock on the door. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Over your shoulder. (laughs) This is for Bobby. I don't know, but anyway, that was just again like some something totally you know that I never would have expected. Yeah, fish integrate across a whole lot of things: history, culture. There, that's one of their intrigues. I think that's so cool. That's awesome. How has the fishing scene for tarpon and fly fishing for tarpon scene changed in Florida over over times? It's blown up. It's always was always better back in the day when you talk to the older folks. But if you actually look at like the boat register, you know, registries and all this sort of stuff, which I did for the book, it's crazy. You know, there were two guides, I think, in Key West back in the 70s or 80s. I mean, now there's 80 something. I mean, there's just a lot more people out there fishing for tarpon and and bonefish in the keys uh and then add on you know the jet skis and the weekend warriors and the booze cruisers there's just a lot of activity out there right now which has you know they're they're trying to figure out why tarpon have changed their migration patterns a little bit in some part there's some parts that they afford where they used to come in all the time and now they don't they just don't show up at all there and they think it has to do with some of that kind of, you know, human, human activity on the water. Um, but no, it's changed. It's changed a lot. And actually what's uh, depressing to me mostly is that it's, it's changed in the Everglades. It used to be when I first started going down there that you'd launch the boat and within, you could count to 20 after like two turns in the mangroves. And you're like, I have no idea where I am. None. And I, and I will not see another human or boat or any, or hear anything. I might hear a plane way overhead, but that's about it for the remainder of this day. And I would say in the last three or four years, you know, just start to see more and more people sort of out there. But again, I just think that there people are just out and about more, which is, you know, can be a good thing if all of that, those people are harnessed into conservation. And if all of them sort of, you know, if everyone cares. Why should people care about this fish? And what are maybe one or two simple things folks can do to help this fish into the future? I mean, you know, as an angler, obviously there are reasons to do it. But even if you're not an angler, I think there are reasons to care about uh, wild things that have been around for 50 million years that we are negatively impacting. Um, tarpon don't live in our world. We, we barged in on their world 300,000 years ago. They were here a lot longer than we were. And it's worth mentioning here, too, about so not only are they a long uh, species that have been around forever, individually they live extremely long lives, which I find totally fascinating. How long are we talking? 80 years. So I I love the fact, no, I've been fishing for tarpon for about 15 years, but I know people who've been fishing for tarpon for 60 years. And, you know, it's just, it's a statistical unlikelihood, but it's possible that, you know, my buddy, Tom, who's been fishing for him for 60 years may have seen a Mm -hmm. fish 60 years ago and then saw it again last year. That's cool. I mean, you know, it's it's just their whole life cycle is cool. the, The migration is cool. The way they look is really cool. But more importantly, they're here first. You know, we don't have dominion over Earth. We, we're supposed to be living kind of in unison with the rest of the stuff. And you could also say that they're canary in a coal mine. If, if they are 
not doing well, something is wrong. Something is wrong with the way that we're treating our ecosystems. If if these fish, which have been have, have adapted to everything, to ice ages, to heat waves, to over 50 million years, are suddenly, you know, here we are in the in what a lot of scientists call the Anthropocene, the age of man, where we affect everything. E.O. Wilson had a great riff on this whole thing that if we keep doing what we're doing to our ecosystems and species like tarpon suffer for it and maybe even go away, pretty soon we'll be in what he calls the Eremocene, which is the age of loneliness, which means we're going to be the only people, the only kind of species around, which I think, you know, would be best if we could avoid that. And so, you know, I think tarpon to a certain degree, they, they sort of are a loud and clear signal that something is not right, that something that we are prioritizing things that we shouldn't prioritize and we should be more thoughtful about how we allocate the aquifer. We should be more thoughtful about how we develop our coastlines. We should just be more thoughtful about how we live with other species. Thank you, Monty. This was awesome chatting with you. Appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you guys. Yeah. All right. Get out there yeah. and enjoy all the fish and please take care of the tarpon and your coasts and aquifers. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. If we lose both of them and Tennessee beats Missouri, then Tennessee would go in. So we're not we're not locked yet, but you know, we're thinking playoffs. We're thinking we you don't want to lose one at this point. Yeah. You don't want to put yourself in a position where they they can be like, hmm, should we have Oregon or you know? Yeah. A lot of other one loss teams out there. So yeah. Anyway, it's all fascinating. Right. College football is so fun this year. It's awesome. It is. It's been a good year. I'm sorry, Katrina.